0: Welcome to episode 59 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, I'm the associate editor at the magazine. And this is the last podcast of 2021.
0: In fact, it's the 69th podcast we've done together, Charlotte. If you count the 10 we did as lockdown culture,
1: it is indeed. Now, moving swiftly. A big thank you, as ever, to the wealth manager and private bank coots for continuing to sponsor us. It's no secret that property prices have rocketed over the last decade, making it really tricky and often almost impossible for young people to get a foot on the property ladder. Having a daughter myself who's starting out on her first job, I actually know how tough this is, especially with university fees to pay off. You might be a parent or a grandparent wishing to support a family member to cross this daunting bridge and get on that first rung. But it's often challenging knowing where to start.
0: Even if you're feeling fairly gloomy about your ability to give the support that your family member or even a godchild or a close friend needs, Coots's bespoke borrowing solutions could be exactly what you're looking for. Coots has specialists who will really take their time to look at your whole financial picture to try and find a solution which will work for you. So just visit coots.com to discover more.
1: Anyway, we're going all over the country this week, from Surrey to Birmingham, and we're going to start on the south coast. Regular listeners might remember that last year, Liz Gilmore, the director of Hastings Contemporary, told us about the robot the gallery was using during lockdown, enabling people who couldn't visit in person to do an extraordinary virtual visit and really see the work. Now, it was Liz who alerted us to the artist support pledge started by Matthew Burrows in March last year to support artists during the pandemic. Artists and makers posted images of their work on Instagram priced at a maximum of £200 and every time an artist sold £1,000 of work they pledged to buy £200 of work from another artist. Matt came on the podcast around that time to tell us all about it and we wished him luck never imagining what would happen next.
0: The artist support pledge became a global phenomenon it enabled artists to maintain a virtual income stream and in 2020 it generated an astonishing £60 million of sales. To celebrate, the Artist Support Pledge has moved from our screens onto the walls of Hastings Contemporary with an exhibition, A Generous Space. And Here to tell us all about it, of course, are Liz and Matt. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Well, welcome back to both of you and congratulations, Matt, on your well-deserved MBE. Having you both back on again is such a lovely way to round off 21. We're absolutely... Thrilled that you're coming back on to tell us about what a huge success last year was. I gather the exhibition's design is inspired by an Instagram grid and that all the labels have the artist's Instagram details so anyone wanting to buy can get directly in touch with them, which is totally in tune with your egalitarian vision. You've had 3,600 submissions that your selection panel has narrowed down to 300 works. So tell
2: our listeners about the range of work they're going to see. It's an incredible show, this is a a snapshot globally as to what is going on in art now. We have works from all over the world and what people will see is an encounter with 300 and I think it's seven artworks. But actually what you see is incredible talent, Uh, artists who some are are well-known artists, some are less so. And, And the whole point of this show is that it doesn't matter. This is a celebration of the creative talents around us and of uh, the the very generous spirit of what Artist Support Pledge is.
0: This is such a happy ending. And Matt, you weren't just made an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List last year, but you're also the Prime Minister's Point of Light Award, and you were named Apollo's Art Personality of the Year, as well as being listed among the Art Review Power 100. You're an artist yourself, so do you have any of your own work in the exhibition? And in fact, have you had any time to do anything with all this going on?
3: Yeah, it's been quite a challenge, I have to say. I do have one piece in, and yeah, I'm still making work. It, it Balancing it out is is not the easiest easiest job in the world, but I, I try to think of it as part of what I do. And I've always done that. I mean, Art Support Pledge came out of that idea that I always sort of thought, OK, if I give a little bit back into my community of artists as an artist, so it's not just trying to take out of it all the time, it makes for a much more pleasant experience of being an artist. So really, it grew out of that in the first place. But it's, um, it's certainly been a challenge, but it's, it's also been you know, an extraordinary year, like you say, with, the, the, I suppose, the awards I've had. I mean, in a way, I'm, I've been a little bit too busy to take them all in.
1: I remember when we talked way back in the day when you were just starting, and I remember Ed asking you if you had any, uh, you know, if any big, really famous artist could be a member of the artist Port and you said yes indeed, and you have got some quite big artists in this show, haven't you? who, who have you got?
3: Um, well, we have a bit of artists like um, Anne Ryan, who currently has a show at uh, Turner Contemporary. Um, who else do we have We have uh, well Susan Absolom is in it who she's just won the contemporary painting prize uh, so we've got a, a range of artists, and there's always been a range of artists on our Art support pledge and it was designed really with that in mind that it's not it's not really about sort of the poor looking after the poor it's about the community of the arts looking after one another
1: yeah i gather as well that it's um the artists support pledges also hugely benefit accentuate the organisation that challenges perceptions of disability by, provide, by providing opportunities for deaf and disabled people to participate in the cultural sector. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, Accentuate is led by one of Hastings Contemporary's trustees, Esther Fox, who's an incredible artist and, and a disabled artist. And she w- was uh, delighted that works that were made by Quentin Blake, Sir Quentin Blake, were were sold on artist support pledge and and the proceeds were given to accentuate.
1: I think when we talked to you, Liz, which was also way back in the day last year, I think you had a Quentin Blake show on at Hastings then, didn't you? long.
0: That's right. Yeah. I was I was going to buy one. They were uh, he was doing a sketch every single day, wasn't he?
2: He he was doing uh, lockdown sketches, which he donated to the gallery, and a hundred percent of the proceeds were were given to support the gallery. So. Uh, Sir Quentin is is, is amazing, and um, he was hugely behind Artist Support
0: Pledge. I should have bought one. I'm kicking myself, for not getting
2: one. <laughs> there are more, there are more. You just need to go onto the website. Um, you, and, and the point about this is that we're really championing artists, whether they be Sir Quentin or whether they be artists you may not even know the names of. We really want people to buy art, to start this culture of buying art. So if you go on Hastings Contemporaries website, what you can expect is to be able to come across the detail of all 300-odd artists who are in the Artist Support Pledge show, but also people can still buy real work by Sir Quentin Blake at a very special Hastings price. Oh, brilliant. And of course,
0: it's perfect for Christmas, isn't
2: it? Completely, completely. Certainly, all of the works on Artist Support Pledge we're, we're in the show, we're hoping that people will not just buy the artworks on show, but they will start the process of commissioning their own work. This is the groundbreaking nature of what's happening at the moment through Artist Support Pledge, that suddenly it's not about artists just buying each other's work. This is about anyone being able to buy art at an affordable price that takes the risk out of it in a way. So it's perfect for Christmas. Get in touch with all the artists, check out the uh, Hastings Contemporary website and indeed look on the hashtags of Artist Support Pledge.
1: And just, just before you go, Matt, you're carrying it on, aren't you? I mean, the, the artist support pledge, is, it's now the cat's out of the bag. It's just going to run and run, is it?
2: Yeah,
3: I think uh, I kind of realised fairly early on that it wasn't going to stop. Um, <laughs> so it really was about kind of how, do, how do you sustain that and how do you keep innovating? I mean, really, our support pledge is about innovative sharing. It's about taking, creating values that create, can create a kind of, an effect cultural change. Um, so really light touch ideas, and and in a way, things like a generous space was just about saying, okay, if we're going to do exhibitions in real venues, how can they affect the greatest number of people affect, positively? So like Liz was saying, that you can you know connect with all the artists in the show, but you can also then connect to the artists they're connected to. So it's it's not just three hundred and seven artists you're looking at; it's three hundred and seven artists plus all the artists that uh, those artists are showing on their accounts through things like in-view posts, which we we ask the participants to do.
1: Oh, it's just brilliant and huge
2: good luck with it. And it runs till the 17th of April, doesn't it, Liz? It does, it does. There's plenty of time. So uh, what we really hope is this really kickstarts the idea of anyone being able to buy art, anyone coming along to see uh, an incredible group of artists. It is such a beautiful exhibition and really, really worth a visit if you uh, want to get a snapshot into what is going on in art now.
0: We can't wait to see the exhibition as well.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us here. Thank Thank you. you.
0: On the South Coast, we're going to Birmingham now to talk about the Celebrity Beast in Art, whatever that means, an exhibition at the Barber Institute of Fine Art that stars Miss Clara. I see. It stars Miss Clara, the female Indian rhinoceros, who received an unprecedented level of fame during the 18th century. This is very, very bizarre. Uh The exhibition covers the period between 1500 and 1860. It's the UK's first ever show devoted to Clara. I can't believe we've waited this long. Uh And also other well-known pachyderms. And the pachyderm is a posh word for a large, thick-skinned mammals so that makes me a pachyderm which is terrific (laughs) the display also looks at the emergence of menageries and zoos and the significance of the capture and captivity of these big beasts given our love of animals i think this is going to be a blockbuster i agree tell us all about it is the curator robert wendy good morning Robert, I'm very upset your surname is not nominative determinative. Maybe maybe there's a chicken called Wendley or something. Anyway, carry on.
4: There could be. Good well, to uh, see you. Uh, hello, hello. My, my boss is already calling me Rhino Man, so it's only a matter of time <laughs> for I have to change my name by deed poll.
1: It's absolutely lovely to have you with us. And it's such a great thing, as Ed's saying, blockbuster for Christmas. But it's also going to be raising a lot of issues about our relationship with the animal world. Now, for our listeners who don't know, the Barber Institute was founded in 1932, housed in Birmingham's most significant Art Deco building, designed by Robert Atkinson, has a serious collection ranging from Botticelli and Bellini through Manet and Van Gogh to Magritte and Auerbach, and is well worth a visit. So can you maybe start by telling our listeners a bit about the gallery itself before we get well into the
4: rhinos absolutely yes so as you mentioned uh, founded in the 1930s by lady barber who was the widow of a local property property developer and they had no children and they were very sort of enlightened in this respect they had connections with um, senior staff at the university and they recognized it needed a sort of cultural institution Um, lady barber was particularly keen on music So we have a very fine concert hall, one of the finest in the country. And this art collection, which was built up using the Barber's funds by successive art historian directors with the mission of buying works of that quality required by the National Gallery or the Wallace Collection. So very high benchmark. And by and large, the directors succeeded in achieving that. It's one of the great small museums of Europe, and it encompasses not just paintings, but sculpture, works on paper and a fabulous coin collection. One of the finest in the world of Byzantine coins in particular.
0: Absolutely brilliant. I love these small galleries. I have actually been to the Barber Institute, but we want to talk about the exhibition, Miss Clara and the celebrity beast in art. Yes. Tell our listeners about Miss Clara and the bronze affair that forms the centrepiece of the show.
4: Yes, so we've had this bronze from quite early on in our history, and we wondered what it was. A hundred years ago, it was thought to be a great Renaissance bronze, but in fact, it's an 18th century bronze representing Miss Clara. So who was Miss Clara? She was brought to Europe by a Dutch sea captain in 1741. And uh, no one had seen a rhinos- not rhinoceros since 1579. That was the last time a rhino had appeared in Europe. And she was toured around by this enterprising sea captain, toured endlessly for nearly 20 years in a, in a rickety wooden carriage uh, up and down the, the very poor roads of Europe. She went reached as far as Naples, Poland, Copenhagen and ended up her life in, in London and being seen by everyone, by princes and kings to merchants, Scientists, artists, uh, and the common man she was, as you mentioned, uh, an, an Indian rhino brought from um, Assam in northeast India and brought over and Many attempts have been made in the past to bring rhinos over, but they 've generally um, been unsuccessful because the animals had died on the voyage.
1: did you know who, who did the sculpture
4: so the sculpture itself um, we 've through the research for the exhibition uh we've, we've um, tracked down a, a large marble version of the same model as our bronze, uh, which we, we now are pretty sure was by the court sculptor at Mannheim, where Clara visited in the 1740s, and the Elector Palatine, who had his residence there, he, he uh, commissioned this marble sculpture, which is about a metre long, and is now in the Rothschild collection. And uh, our bronze is a version of that.
1: I mean, there are loads of other exhibits exhibits alongside Clara, aren't they? Like the the tragic Indian elephant, Chuni.
4: So, yes, Chuni was, um, again, a a great uh, favourite of the London uh, population. Uh, She'd been, sorry, he'd been brought to uh, England around 1810 and then became a, a part of the famous menagerie at uh, Exeter Change on the Strand, which was an extraordinary thing in itself. A series of caged animals on the second floor uh, above a shopping arcade on the Strand. Can you believe it? Elephants, tigers, lions, <laughs> monkeys, um, all crammed up, crammed in, this, in cages in, above a shopping arcade. It's slightly uh, unbelievable. Uh, Lord Byron visited this, um, this famous menagerie in 1813. I could just read uh, briefly what he said in his diary about it, if you like. Yeah. Um, So he said, Two nights ago, I saw the tiger's supper at Exeter Change. The fondness of the hyena for her keeper amused me most. Such a conversazione. (laughs) There was a hippopotamus like Lord Liverpool, that was the prime minister, in the face, (laughs) and the ursine sloth had the very voice and manner of my valet. But the tiger (laughs) talked too much. The elephant took and gave me my money again, took off my hat, opened a door, trunked a whip, and behaved so well that I wished he was my butler. The handsomest animal on earth is one of the panthers, but the poor antelopes were dead. I should hate to see one here. The sight of the camel made me pine again for Asia Minor. Wow. <laughs> it's quite a evocative account of, of the menagerie. But poor, poor Chuni, yes, um, as a male elephant, as he matured, uh, he developed this sort of seasonal hormonal change called the must, where he gets a bit sort of, elephants get a bit frisky, basically on heat. And that combined with his close confinement in these um, horrific cages, really, meant he got more and more distressed and aggressive. And finally, uh, in 1826, he was so uh, wild that he was starting to bash down his, his uh, cage. And there was a real concern that he would just um, escape and rampage down the strand, uh, causing mayhem and, and death all around. So the owner, Edward Cross, decided the only thing to do was actually to to. Dispatch, poor Tuny. And so some soldiers were found, and um, he was basically... Massacred um, and a hail of bullets. It was a, it was a horrific uh, occasion, and it did I think make a you know people realise this was not the way uh, to deal with animals, and I think it did encourage the development of, of zoos uh, to create more natural habitat, more open habitat for large animals like that. So it was uh, you know a, a notorious event uh, in animal husbandry. Well,
0: I'm massively depressed by that, and we've got an animal sentience bill going through Parliament at the moment. So maybe I'll bring up the case of Chuni to. Mm. emphasise how important animal welfare is. But anyway, it is an absolutely fascinating exhibition. I love uh, the idea of seeing this rhino. Of course, Jura's rhinos, I think, are on display at the National Gallery at the moment. And also, I have a massive chance to plug a friend of mine, Johnny Cook, the artist, who's drawn a kind of semi-life-sized rhino which hangs in the atrium of Chelsea in Westminster Hospital. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, I
4: don't know uh, that one. That sounds worth looking where at. You
0: must, you must get down there and have a look. But tell us... Uh, apart apart from the rhino, what are the other highlights of the exhibition?
4: So, uh, well, Clara takes up about half the show. I mean, there's some fantastic, uh, there's a fantastic painting of by, by Longy, uh, which you may know from the National Gallery. There's a, a wonderful clock from the Fitzwilliam Museum showing a rhino, rhinoceros incorporated into the clock case. And uh, that's about how extravagant fashion could get in 18th century France, this amazing confection. And uh, lots of images of other famous beasts. So there's a, a, some, a Rembrandt print, for example, um, and images of, of rhinos and hippos and elephants from, from the ages. There's a Roman coin showing uh, a rhinoceros. There's also a magnificent image uh, of, uh, or images of, uh, Obesh, the first hippo to be brought to Europe um, since Roman times. And Obesh was the star of London Zoo uh, of the 1850s. Had to be captured uh, on an island on the Sudan called Obesh, hence, uh, hence his name, and then brought um, all the way by PO steamer, no less. To, to Southampton and hence to London Zoo. And uh, on the steamer, um, because uh, Obesh was still a calf, uh, live cows had to be provided to, to provide the 80 pints of milk that he needed each day to be to be <laughs> suckled. Um, so th- these animals were not brought over without a considerable effort uh, and expense, um, but they, they proved their way. Uh, they were very sort of, lucrative attractions once, once they did arrive.
1: Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. The exhibition is only until the, well, it's until the 27th of February. So you've got a bit of time to get there, but mm. don't miss it. And it's definitely worth a visit to Birmingham for. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for coming on and telling us all about it.
4: Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Our
0: last guest of the year is a polymath who defies all description. <laughs> He's a multi-talented wit, lyricist, screenwriter and crime novelist and much-loved he would say, sadly overlooked, panellist on Just A Minute. His cabaret act, Kit McTonnell, with the brilliant composing musician and pianist James McConnell, has been seen up and down the land from the Savoy to Peter Express. They've entertained, <laughs> and the Bremar Summit, actually. They've entertained me, eight prime ministers, royalty, even Egyptian arm dealers who understood not a word, I am, of course, talking about Kit hesketh Harvey, who turned his enormous array of talent to opera last July, when he wrote the libretto for the life and death of Alexander Litvinenko for the glorious Grange Park Opera. Now, for those who haven't ever been, I strongly advise trying to get a ticket for the 2022 season. Anyway, tickets to Kit's Litvinenko swiftly sold out, but the good news is it's now free to stream if you sign up to Grange Park Opera's mailing list. Kit is here, still in bed, with an amazing moustache, and he's going to tell us all about it. He looks incredibly rough.
5: Well, it's very sweet of you, Edward, and I hope you're feeling OK today. I'm feeling decidedly rough, staring at Shah. Shahr is this very pretty little village. Um, Shah, in the Surrey Hills of Outstanding Natural thingy. And on the other side of the hill is, is West Horsley, where the, um, the the extraordinary opera house in the woods is. Bamba Gascoigne inherited this mansion from an aunt um, and didn't know what to do with it. And in comes Wasfi Kani's uh, explosion of energy, looking for somewhere to put Grange Park Opera in. And they, they built the thing in about four seconds flat. And it's um, very, very uh, quickly establishing itself as a place for new work. And so, um, the composer, Anthony Bolton, who had been a tremendously famous fund manager or something in the city, I don't understand the city, but anyway, he'd retired from the city and returned to his first love, which was composing, and composed this opera, The Life and Death of Alexander Litvinenko. Uh, and, and so anyway, he wrote, uh, the, this opera about the, the death, the notorious death and murder, in fact, of Alexander Litvinenko, who was an ex-KGB officer who, um, uh, alienated uh, the new regime in Moscow, fled to London, became a British citizen with his extraordinary wife, uh, Marina Litvinenko. And when Putin passed a law saying any enemies of the Russian state anywhere in the world were um, ripe for murder or an assassination, he was uh, poisoned by uh, a chap called Lugovoy who's now tremendously famous in Russia, uh, at the Millennium Hotel in Mayfair, um, with a cup of tea containing polonium, which is the most lethal subject on Earth. Earth. You know, one teaspoon can wipe out half a city. And um, th- like, like most of um, Putin's goons, uh, an almost comically inept assassination, but one of incredible brutality because it sort of destroys yourselves from inside rather than... I mean, it was a hideous death. Uh, and people will remember the, the the picture of him in the green nhs gown um at uh, the royal college hospital dying um and uh, andrew thought this was a uh, uh, and it is a, a very powerful subject for uh, an opera and um we wrote it uh finished it about 4 years ago um and it was postponed, of course, because of COVID. And so we did it last July. Um, in this, ext- it was, it was a very odd, actually, disparity between the incredible beauty of this mellow old mansion and its fabulous gardens and, and the savagery of the subject, really. And it was done with astonishing, um, directed with, with, it sounds weird to say great beauty by, uh, Stephen Metcalf, uh, who, uh, works a lot at Grange Park and is one of their finest, um, opera directors. So it was all in all a rather weird experience for all sorts of reasons. And, uh, and, and then, you know, the, the bastions of the opera going community in their black tie in these beautiful gardens on a sun drenched summer evening, um, watching this, chilling chilling piece and Anthony's music is very very um sort of post-Britain chilling perfect for the subject um it has this sort of steely quality lots of upper dissonance and it it was all in all powerful but but do watch it yes you can stream it you can watch it live not live um free is the word I'm looking for uh if you go to Grange Park (laughs) Opera and um some really stunning performances in it uh, rebecca potona who sings um marina was singing to marina in the auditorium and it was an astonishing experience because two of the characters three of the characters i think on the operatic stage are still alive and marina is, is probably well known for her press appearances still very beautiful still absolutely implacable and after the owen inquiry had, had decidedly pointed the finger at at Putin, um, defiant and very brave, I think.
0: As our last few minutes of the year, and just before we wrap up for Christmas, it's wonderful to be able to talk to you about pantomime. Well, of course. You might remember that Kit and Pong were on the podcast in our very first edition, when we stopped being lockdown culture and became breakout culture. So that was really sad because everything was likely to be cancelled. But you opened last night in Dick Whittington, and you played the villainous King Rat. How was it
5: for you, Kit? It's fantastic. It's my, I think my 11th performance here at the Yvonne. Uh, the, th- the third time I've given my dick to Yvonne. Um, uh, Yvonne Arno, <laughs> oh, Ah, yes. Oh, no, Ah, yes. Um, and, uh, uh, it is, well, actually, it's not that disconnected from Litvinenko because honestly, the, you like those two goons who were sent over for Skripal, They were straight out of Panto, weren't they? But the, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a theatre because my maternal line comes from here, from around Guilford. Um, uh, I was taken, marched by my um, ocean-going beast of a grandmother uh, to watch the Yvonne Arnault oh, no. <laughs> actually being built. Yes, I am that old. Um, and I'm spearheading the campaign to, um, to, to gain funds to... It needs about eight million, so if there's somebody who wants their name on a studio theatre or a rehearsal room or a whole rehearsal block, um, now is the time to step forward. But anyway, that's incidental. Panto is tremendously important. It's the child's first experience of the theatre generally, and it's the first time you can grab a child by the metaphorical um, collar, or neck actually, um, and say, look, this isn't a video game, this isn't um, a film, this isn't telly, this is something much more exciting called theatre. And the villain always comes on first, of course, downstage less, is actually reeking with tradition. And you get a minute in which to terrify the kids. And uh, I think my record is nine carried out screaming in one minute. Uh, and you think, ka-ching, I've, I've done it. But but um, <laughs> King Rat is one of the best because he's got this tail, you see. He's got this tail which is um, very good for what Panto has to do, which is play on two levels, one for the children You know, enthrall them and terrify them and make them laugh and clap and sing. And then at the same time nodding and winking to the grown-ups saying, isn't this all ridiculous, isn't it fun, isn't Panto stupid? But anyway, uh, so, so we opened last night, which is why I sound um, as though I've been dragged through gravel. And, well, and oh um, it was great. It was just great, Panto back, yay! And, you know, kids out there clapping and screaming and, and their little sorcerer eyes looking up at you. But
1: you have been so eloquent over the years about Pantomime and why you love it. But, but just tell our listeners, why, why is it that you go back every year you've been doing it for 11 years to this theatre and play in pantomime. What, what's so wonderful about it? What is it?
5: I wish I could say there was anything noble about it. It's just very, very nice to work with um, young people and they're teaching you stuff that you would otherwise not know. You would sort of slump into this um, ancient white male BBC sofa and, and, um, and become too conventional and too smug and too set in your ways. No, it's it's just a bit spoily. It's a bit spoily. And it's an exciting way to to have Christmas. You know, Christmas is for children and excitement and about Advent and about um, the, this huge sense of anticipation. I, and, and what the arts have gone through, I'm terribly, terribly lucky, you know, to be working. Oh,
1: well, that's wonderful. And the audience is, just must be thrilled to have it.
5: Well, Charlotte, I hope to see you there. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do.
1: Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week, and indeed this year.
0: Charlotte and I are off for Christmas now, but we'll be back on Sunday, the 16th of January, with episode 60 of Breakout Culture, so make sure you listen in then. Meanwhile, you know where to find us, countryandtownhouse.co.uk, and of course, forward slash newsletter, you can have your very, very British Christmas with the Great British
1: Brands Gift Guide. Thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor. And do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply. Well, thank you so much to all our listeners who stayed with us. And please come back next year. We hope you all have a wonderful Christmas a new year. Goodbye.
0: Happy Christmas and see you next year.